From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Hi, everyone. Jonathan Kohler here. Welcome to The Surgery Set. If you're here, hopefully that means you enjoy our program. Could you do me a huge favor and rate the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts? Also, as we prepare for season three, we want to know more about our listeners. There's a survey on our website, surgery.wisc.edu slash podcast. Let us know about you. Listeners who fill out a survey will be entered to win a lovely Wisconsin Badgers red stainless steel water bottle. Now, on to the show. In this episode, we're speaking with Dr. Robert Redfield. He's an assistant professor in the Division of Transplantation in the Department of Surgery here at UW-Madison, where he holds the endowed chair in the Berkman Family Transplantation Professorship. Dr. Redfield did medical school at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, spent a year as a transplant immunobiology research fellow at the University of Pennsylvania, and finished his two-year transplantation fellowship here at the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Redfield specializes in pancreatic and multi-organ transplants and has made news here lately with the work he's doing on xenografts. That's taking organs from animals and putting them in people. But he's also the world authority on a rare disease called loin pain hematuria, for which the University of Wisconsin is one of very few centers providing comprehensive treatment. I spoke to Dr. Redfield after he gave an illuminating Grand Rounds talk on loin pain hematuria. The full talk is linked on the Surgery Set webpage. Again, that website is surgery.wisc.edu slash podcast. Here's Dr. Redfield. So Dr. Redfield, welcome to the surgery set. Thank you. You just gave a, a great grand rounds on a, something that I had never heard of, huh? loin pain hematuria. Yeah. It is one of the truly rare diseases. It's on the NIH rare disease website. And even though I'd never heard of it, it turns out that you who work just down the hall from me, have been working on this for a few years, and Dr. Solinger here has been working on it as well. We're sort of the leading center for this very rare disease. Yeah, currently right now, the you know historically, Dr. Solinger has done about 20 cases or so. Usually is limited to you know the local Wisconsin area, although he had some referrals from, from outside. But say what's changed a lot is it is a rare disease, so patients that we were seeing typically being local you'd only see you know one once in a while now with the advent of uh, social media has allowed kind of the word to spread and we are seeing patients come into us from all across the country to try to figure out how to solve uh, their pain from what's called loin pain hematuria syndrome and Australia. Right. And Australia. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. It's right. It, just remarkable. You show this map of, yeah. of people who are, are headed our way. Tell us a little bit about this disease because I, I was really st- struck by it. It's described by some people as the worst pain in medicine. Yeah, so uh, patients have ever had or people have ever had a, a kidney stone, many people will equate that to e- uh, either you know similar or even worse than childbirth. People with loin pain hematuria syndrome, some can have a history of stones. They have basically a feeling of passing a kidney stone 24-7. And one of the main diagnostic problems is that it's simply really just pain. They might have some microscopic uh, hematuria on a urinalysis, sometimes gross hematuria. 
but they have preserved kidney function. And really the long-term effects on the kidney itself are not bad. It's just really, it's pain. So it's very hard for physicians to make a diagnosis. Many times patients are chalked up to being drug seekers, making it up. It's all in their head. You know, Dr. Solinger's had some initial experience where he's treated these patients and seen dramatic, remarkable results. And now we are trying to systematically understand this disease better and develop diagnostic tests to decide who does have this disease and who will actually benefit from autotransplantation. Yeah, there's that old aphorism in surgery. If you operate for pain, you'll find it, right? Like you should operate for, as you said in your talk, like broken bones, bowel obstructions, things that you can see on imaging. And this is an invisible condition on, on any imaging we have, right? Correct. So say it's right-sided kidney pain. Have right-sided kidney pain, well, they have their gallbladder out, they have their appendix, you know, people are just kind of grasping at straws. You know, for, for women, many come to us already having a diagnostic laparoscopy to look for either adhesions um, or any bowel pathology, endometriosis, and then ultimately, once that's all been ruled out, Many, you know, after years and years of bouncing around to physicians, they usually run into someone who said, you know, uh, maybe this is loin pain hematuria syndrome. But now with, you know, the Internet and social media, many patients, one of the first stops that they go to when they have a symptom is just to Google it. Mm -hmm. And now uh, because of patients, they have uh, an amazing resource and support network to help direct patients to, to the right place. And certainly we've benefited from uh, our patients being on social media and uh, referring patients further on to us. Yeah, and now it's, it, it seems to me like with social media, the pendulum has sort of swung, right? It used to be you'd have this symptom, you wouldn't have any idea what the disease was, and you'd sort of rely on doctors to have read about loin pain hematuria right. in a textbook somewhere, which had they come to me... I would never have known, Correct. I mean, right? I, I never had a lecture in medical school yeah. on loin pain hematuria. I kind of loosely started hearing about it because of where I trained in residency and then just uh, training with Dr. Solinger. Right. You know, one of the things, too, it does make people uncomfortable, especially with loin pain hematuria. There's a lot of people who don't know what's going on, so these support networks, patients are sharing everything, you mm -hmm. know sharing every part of their diagnostic workup, every part of their, their syndrome, their symptoms, and really bouncing ideas. And I, I think we need to catch up in medicine and understand that that's okay. The patients are asking for change or asking for discovery or asking for better treatment options are actually helping us. I see patients back in follow-up and they tell me, well, I, I heard, you know, this person has this or that, and they really are helping the field evolve because they're kind of our eyes and ears out there. I mean, we're keeping a, a close eye on our data, but even a retrospective chart review at a one-year outcome doesn't have the granularity that, honestly, a Facebook experience actually has. Right. You know? Some people here I know are doing amazing work using natural language processing, having computers go through vast amounts of social media data to sort of test how patients are doing, predict recurrences from cancer. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that we can no, do it, it is, paying attention to it, the patient. Yeah, yeah. It, is, it is fascinating. I mean, you look at some of these re small case series for patients with nutcracker or loin pain hematuria syndrome, and they'll have, they'll say, well, their pain improved. 
And that was the, the primary outcome. But, I mean, what does that even mean? Mm-hmm. You know, like, are they still on narcotics? Are they off narcotics? Are they back to work? I mean, that's the detail that you really want to know. I want to know if I'm going to do a therapy that there is a high likelihood that not only is the pain going to improve, but it's going to change their life. And, like, that, those are the outcomes that I would really like to understand. And you can get that from more granular social media data and stuff like that. I mean, let's be clear. Like, this is not a benign intervention. What you talk about doing for your procedure here is auto-transplantation, right? So you're taking out someone's kidney from where it is and basically putting it where you would normally put it if you were transplanting in another person's kidney into the abdomen, right? Taking it out of the retroperitoneum and putting it down by the bladder. Right. And so, uh, no, you're exactly right. It is a, it's a, it's a very invasive therapy. What I would say is that You know, I'm a kidney transplant surgeon. Here at the University of Wisconsin, we have uh, one of the largest kidney transplant programs in the world with not only volume, but some of the best outcomes. So, you know, we take kidneys out of people and transplant them to their loved one or friend almost on a daily basis here. Mm -hmm. In auto transplantation, those same steps are happening but they're happening in the same person. You're taking, you're cutting the whole kidney out, and then you're transplanting it back into them. And so while people, I think, will say that, wow, there's three connections. i got to make a connection to the artery. i got to make a connection to the vein. i got to make a connection to the ureter. Those are three potential failure points. This is something that we do every day. Or if you compare uh, other invasive procedures, so like a renal vein transposition that you know may work, 50% of the time and just patients with, you know, nutcracker. The approach is similar. It's through a big midline incision. You have to mobilize the kidney. Granted, it's one anastomosis, but it's anastomosis that uh, doesn't get performed on a daily basis. And I think, you know, in our hands at the University of Wisconsin, you know, we do kidney transplants every day. And these are actually much more straightforward than a, a typical kidney transplant. Patients are young, healthy, they don't have vascular disease. You know, it's their own kidney. It's not someone else's. So although it's too early to say what the long-term complications, you know, could be, I am very encouraged by our early results. I'm also very encouraged the fact that it does seem to be a simpler operation when it's an auto-transplant compared to um, kind of a typical transplant for someone who has end-stage renal disease. I imagine the long-term results are actually going to be even more substantial. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that you're not just taking everybody who comes to the office and says, I read on Google about this pain syndrome. I think that's me. And you say, great, let's go and auto-transplant your kidney, right? There's an exhaustive, multidisciplinary screening process to make sure that the people who get this operation are the people who are going to benefit from it. Correct, correct. And honestly, I think auto-transplantation is just one treatment option. It's kind of the most definitive you know, final treatment option. You know, if someone's early in their disease process and they have a minor twinge there or twang there and they're able to manage it with, you know, Tylenol or what have you, that's someone who I think an autotransplant may be too aggressive for. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, I do, you know, I've had some discussions with insurance companies where they'd say, well, the patient's not addicted to narcotics yet, so this is not, you know... Because right. that's they, the time to act, right? right, yeah. right. 
And uh, thankfully, we've been successful, but that just that's the wrong attitude, too. Okay, so we do a thorough evaluation. There are patients that come to see us, and through the workup, we feel like this, that is not the appropriate diagnosis, loin pain, hematuria. And then even patients who we feel pretty confident in that diagnosis, again, this is a pain syndrome with very little organic findings other than hematuria. And we've developed some testing modalities to try to tease out who we think will actually benefit from autotransplantation. But to kind of get back to the narcotic issue, some of it is is a discussion between myself and the patient to decide how much this disease is impacting their life and going over the risks and benefits and deciding, you know, when when to act. We do uh, try to exhaust all advanced chronic pain therapies. We're trying to develop some non-narcotic therapies, like even there's emerging evidence that even just lidocaine infusions could help patients with chronic pain syndromes. We're very interested to see how that would affect patients with chronic loin pain. You know, lidocaine can be infused intravenously, can be excreted through the collecting system, and whether the patients can get relief from that. There is some data to suggest that patients with acute stones can get pain relief from that. So if there's a situation where patients can have their pain controlled by getting an infusion once a month, that could be an appropriate first step Mm -hmm. where autotransplantation is reserved for the severe cases. Hearing your talk reminded me a lot about something that we did a lot where I did fellowship, which is operations for median arcuate ligament syndrome, right? Which is another kind of nebulous pain syndrome that patients bounce around to different doctors and then finally arrive at this diagnosis where, you know, we've, we've typically ascribed it to kinking of the celiac artery that kind of cuts off blood supply to the stomach. My personal feeling having done it is that maybe it's not what's going on with the artery, but the fact that the nerves are so overgrown that they happen to be kinking the artery and we're confusing what's the symptom and what's the result. The net result is, you know, you go in and you sort of lice these nerves that are around the celiac artery and and many patients, if they're very, very carefully pre-screened, do better. And it does seem to be that it's you're affecting the nerve. And and that's basically, it seems like, kind of what you're doing with autotransplantation, right? I mean, it's it's not that the kidney's in the wrong place. It's that there's something wrong with the innervation of the ureter, and if you cut the nerves to the ureter, correct, and it, you know, it feels better. Yeah, you know, um, again, you know, we don't clearly understand. I will say, people who have gone in and just de-innervated the kidney, so they haven't taken it off its vascular pedicle, they haven't divided the ureter. There has been a few reports of some success, but in general, it's about a maybe a 25% success rate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my feeling there is that it's impossible to completely de-innervate uh, the kidney unless you actually cut the whole thing out. There are nerves that run within the the vessel walls. You know, our belief is that the ureter is probably a major source of pain. To be able to completely de-innervate the ureter is technically impossible without actually cutting the whole kidney out. There are nerves that run, you know, within the ureteral wall along the ureter. If you if you skeletonize it too much, you will devascularize the ureter and you'll be left with even more problems like yeah. strictures and uh, ureteral necrosis. So given our current state of knowledge that we don't truly understand what the source of pain is, you know, the most definitive treatment for that would be just to remove the entire kidney. And I think there's a lot to that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it makes sense. It's just such an important reminder of the fact that 
the nervous system and our understanding of pain is at a very early stage, right? Yeah. And nerves are not just the, the nerves that have names that they write about, you know, <laughs> They're in, ones in you anatomy can't textbooks. You can't see these things, you can't, right? You can't see them. Yeah, right. And the way that they feed back. And I mean, just just such a clear demonstration of the need for multidisciplinary care around this, right? So it's not just a transplant surgeon. I mean, who who all is on the team? There's a long list. Right. So we have support from our advanced chronic pain team that can go through many other adjuvant pain therapies, whether it's lidocaine infusion, whether it's nerve blocks or peritoneal blocks. There's even some nerve stimulators. But these are all things that are on the cutting edge that I think patients should hear about and they should consider potentially as first-line therapy. The problem is is that a lot of patients are coming to us very late in their disease process. I think more and more as we become established and well-known, you know, we'll start seeing more and more patients who are getting referred to us early in their process that may benefit from a more advanced chronic pain approach. Mm -hmm. Many of these patients have underlying urologic disorders that need to be ruled out, so we have urology partners some patients have additional vascular malformations that need to be addressed, whether it's iliac vein compression, whether they have pelvic congestion syndrome, whether they have you know all these collaterals in their pelvis that are also causing uh, pelvic pressure that need to be evaluated by GYN and vascular surgery. There is benefit, too, of some additional therapies like acupuncture, physical therapy that need to be addressed uh, and should be offered to patients as well and explored, especially if you're early on in the process. Many times patients, because they've been living in, with pain for you know a decade or so, do need some psychological help mm-hmm. um, uh, to get through everything. I do think there's some evidence that things like cognitive behavioral therapy could provide some benefit with patients with with chronic pain syndromes. So what we're trying to ultimately do is build a comprehensive program, a kind of a one-stop shop for patients with with chronic loin pain and offer them a menu, if you will, of uh, potential interventions because every patient is at a different point along their disease process and have oftentimes many different components that need to be addressed. Great. Podcasts are easily linked in social media. It's very likely that uh, there are patients out there with these symptoms who are listening to this right now. For those patients, how do they get in touch with you? What's the, what's the process if, if someone thinks they have this problem and, and they want to be evaluated? So currently we have an online uh, form where that will go to our, our nurse manager and she'll make contact with the patient. Right now, since our patients are all across the country, we found it's very helpful for me to have actually an in-person, or not an in-person, but a telephone consult one-on-one where I can hear the entire story, I can give my initial impressions, and decide whether it's worth your time to come to the University of Wisconsin. Oftentimes that is the right answer. And then in preparation for that visit, decide and have a number of services set up, whether we decide that chronic pain is going to be important to see or it's going to be important to see vascular at the same time. Is it going to be important just to go right away to a lidocaine test and a CT scan because you've already had a comprehensive workup and really that's the last step. Yeah. So we're trying to do that through a telephone consult initially and then have over time build up an entire itinerary 
some of it does take time. Sometimes insurance companies take a little bit of time to approve these uh, these visits. But um, yeah, that's that's the way uh, to get in touch with us, and obviously we'll have that linked with the podcast. We'll link it right off our page. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about something that a diagnosis I'm learning about for the very first time, and and more importantly about a way of approaching these rare diseases through this sort of thoughtful multidisciplinary approach that I think probably represents the way of how we should be practicing medicine across any diagnosis in the future. So thank you so much. You bet. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our conversation with Dr. Robert Redfield. Join us next time on The Surgery Set when Dr. Joseph Losey from Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh is our guest. We'll discuss how surgery evolved as a field from the Wild West days of apprenticeships to barbers to the formalized education we see today. See you soon. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery, and I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. On Wisconsin